Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Jordan Ellenberg, who has written a wonderful book entitled How Not to Be Wrong. This book is not only a delight to read, it's one of the few books that I would absolutely have on my life list, along with Connections by James Burke. Everybody should read this book. It discusses the value of mathematical reasoning as it occurs in everyday life, and Jordan writes with a delightful sense of humor. Frankly, if Seinfeld had been half as amusing as this book, I would have watched it. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Jordan, as I read the book, I realized that as teachers, we have a lot in common, one of which is a desire to illustrate points by noteworthy anecdotes. You begin the book with the story of Abraham Wald and the missing bullet holes. It's a great anecdote and illustrates key points about why mathematics is so valuable without any equations at all. In fact, that anecdote alone and the conclusions that can be drawn from it and some of the points that you bring up later in the book are worth the price of the book. So do you think you could start by telling Uh, that anecdote to our listeners. Sure. Well, this is a story, as you say, Abraham Wald um, was, he was a refugee from Austria. He fled Austria when the Nazis took over that country and ends up uh, as a professor at Columbia and during the war is working at this uh, sort of top secret math installation called the Statistical Research Group or SRG that's just by Columbia on the Upper West Side of New York. Um, Working on all kinds of mathematical problems related to the conduct of the war. And what happens at one point is that a group of officers come in with a question. They have noticed that the planes that are coming back from Germany um, covered, coming back riddled with bullet holes, but those bullet holes are not equally distributed across the plane. There are more holes in some parts, less holes in others. More on the fuselage, less on the engines. Um, so what they wanted to know from the SRG was how much more armor should we be putting on the part where the planes have more bullet holes? They wanted to know, is there a formula for this? Is there a number? Can you guys compute this mathematically, what we ought to be doing, where we ought to be putting the armor? Uh, And what Abraham Wald told them is, no, you guys have got it completely wrong. You have to put the armor where the bullet holes are not, on the engines. This was very strange. It's worth taking a second to kind of let this sink in. You know, they said, why are we putting the armor where the planes aren't getting hit? And what Wald pointed out to them was, it's not that the Germans can't hit the planes on the engine. It's that the planes that get hit on the engine are the ones that are not coming back from Germany. right? They're the ones that are not in your sample. They're the ones that are not in your study. And what I thought was so intriguing about this example is that you stress that one of the things that mathematicians do is they look at the extreme examples. And when I read this and I thought about it, you could have looked at either of the two extreme examples. If, for instance, the planes that came back had no holes on the, no bullet holes at all on the engine, what's your conclusion? As soon as the engine gets hit, down the plane goes because it doesn't come back. That's one extreme. And the other is it 
extreme was if, for instance, on the fuselage, if you saw that the fuselage was absolutely riddled with bullet holes, it was, you know, a thousand bullet holes per square foot or something like that, your conclusion is, boy, they got a slut, they got a uh, put a lot of bullet holes into the fuselage before it comes down. So had you looked at either one of the two extremes, you could have come to the correct conclusion. That's right. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. And that's a very typical mathematical response to a problem to try to sort of simplify. Sometimes simplifying means like making the phenomenon, taking it out to its most extreme form and asking, well, what would that mean? One of the things that I really enjoyed about this book, and I think is typical of what good teachers do no matter what classes they teach, is that you try and relate the subject that you're teaching to what goes on in the everyday world. I can remember I had a professor that taught a course in Shakespeare, and it was during the 1962 presidential election, and he was relating all the Shakespeare. Uh, 19, yeah, this was when I was back in college, 1962. I'm a pretty old guy. Um, anyway, though, uh, in the 1962 election, he was relating it. To, he was relating the various tragedies and uh, comedies to what was going on in the presidential election. And in your book, you bring Abraham Walden, that anecdote, back in a discussion of formalism in mathematics and also formalism as it applies to constitutional law. And I thought this was a fascinating discussion because here you have formalism. Formalism, which is basically an idea that you originally see constructed in mathematics, although maybe not that many people are familiar with it. But of course, you have all the strict constructionalists on the Supreme Court and all the constitutional lawyers who espouse formalism. And perhaps you could discuss this a little. Yeah, so um, formalism, it's actually, I wouldn't actually so much call it something that was invented in mathematics, although that's in some sense where it achieves its apex. I think it's a strain of thought that um, has always been there. And in terms of legal matters, um, it's actually quite familiar. I mean, in the sense that, you know, we're very used to the principle that if, let's say, evidence against a suspect is gathered incorrectly, we throw it out, right? Even if it's relevant to whether the suspect actually committed the crime or not, um, there's a kind of general understanding that our legal system is meant to dispense not truth, but justice, right? There's a procedure, and the outcome of the procedure determines whether a defendant is jailed or goes free. Absolutely. And, and so I, 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 the, the nature of our legal system, I think, is to be rather formalistic, um, and how this plays out... Uh, I mean, I write a lot about Antonin Scalia, who's a very interesting figure. Um, his opinions make very interesting reading, and I think one thing that's clear um, is that he does see constitutional reasoning in many ways as akin to mathematics. I think, to be honest, he sees it as a little bit more like mathematics than it actually is, um, in that he sees the process of deriving legal conclusions from the Constitution as something like the way mathematicians derive theorems from axioms. And the nature of formalism is that we say, well, maybe what's of interest is not so much whether the axioms are true or false. Maybe that's not even a meaningful question. What we're interested in is which things follow from the axioms. And in the same way, I think a sort of appropriately formalistic uh, view of legal reasoning, which is certainly what Justice Scalia has, is to say, let's not worry about what's in the Constitution is right or wrong or whether the consequences are right or wrong or good or bad. That's not our job. As Supreme Court justices, our job is very limited. It's to take the words of the Constitution as something like the axioms of geometry and to derive the answers to all legal questions from those words. 
That's the goal anyway. Jordan, I thought that was a wonderful discussion. And having brought up the phrases right and wrong, or at least the words right and wrong, the title of your book, How Not to Be Wrong, is very provocative. How would you compare the way mathematics helps us not to be wrong with the way it helps us to be right? Well, it's funny. When I was first uh, selling the book, when I first was sort of talking to different editors about it, one guy asked me, why isn't the book called How to Be Right? And that sort of put me back on my heels. I mean, I had never really thought about this question before, but it's a very natural one. Um, but I think in the end, I stand by my choice of title in the sense that um, not being wrong is a fundamentally more humble goal. And I think we have to be <laughs> modest about what we can actually do, right? Of course, everyone wants to be right. Um, but maybe what mathematics allows us to do is to avoid certain kinds of mistakes um, and certain kinds of errors of judgment. Um, I, I hope that in the book I take a relatively modest stance about um, about what math can do because I don't think the real questions that we face, I don't think they can be answered by math alone. At the same time, I think that if we try to – if we sort of purposefully remove mathematical thinking from our cognitive armamentarium um, – it's just a strange thing to do. I mean, it's like on purpose not using one of your five senses. You know something? One of the things that I appreciated about the book was not only the sense of humor, but also the sense of humility that came through. Because one of the things that often happens is that uh, the, te- uh, the media, the entertainment media, television, movies, etc., uh, emphasize that although mathematics is highly creative, they tend to think that it requires genius to create or to appreciate it. And not only does it come through in your book that you feel that that's strongly not the case, but I was also wondered, I also wondered when I looked at this, because this is a great philosophical question, and I want your input on it. Do you feel mathematics is created or discovered, or is it a combination of the two? Well, certainly, I think almost all working mathematicians, and I'm no exception, feel like it's discovered. Jordan, I think I temporarily lost you. Oh no! It just there was a loud there was a loud sound. So I. Oh okay. <laughs> I think I think almost all working mathematicians, and I'm no exception to this, would say that they feel like the objects of mathematics are discovered. Like the sensation of working with them is not so different from the sensation of dealing with and encountering other objects in the physical world. Um, I recognize that this is not a very philosophically reputable position. Um, and yet I can't shake the sense that uh, that we are dealing with things which are in whatever non-physical sense uh, in the real world. It would be denying my lived experience to sort of say anything else. Yeah, I can understand that, but I've always had difficulty explaining what three is. Uh, <laughs> you know, we compute with it. Everybody knows that one plus two equals three, etc. We can identify things that are groups of three, but it's really hard to get your hands on what three is. Anyway, but I think three is actually one of the easier mathematical concepts. <laughs> say, okay, the three is like an adjective. There are certain kinds of sets of things which are three in number. And you can say, oh, three is the thing that all those sets of three things has in common. I mean, how would you describe what red is? I mean, some things yeah, are red I- and some things are not. And red is that quality which all of red, those things that you identify as red have in common. I don't think it's so terribly different. 
That, you know, that gets back to when I was teaching math for elementary school uh, teachers, which is a fascinating course to teach. What I used to say is that mathematics has a really tough time defining what three is. And so what we do is just like it's really difficult to point, you know, to define what a tree is to a, uh, you know, to a kid. But you just take them out to the park and point out lots of examples of trees and say those are trees and they get the idea. Same is true of three. And speaking of teaching, we both have lived through and are currently living through the pedagogical math wars. And because they impact... And our uh, grandkids they, are going to live through them too, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're never going away. <laughs> um, but a lot of people don't really understand what's going on. And because a lot of our listeners will, have ch- uh, will either have children or will have them, and I'd like you to give us your insight onto what you feel the pedagogical math wars are and tell us where you in particular stand on them. Well, in broad strokes, and this is necessarily very simplified because as we've been discussing, this is an argument that has been going on in some form or another for probably 50 years at the very least. I mean, actually, one thing we have at Wisconsin that's great is in our library, we have a big collection of math textbooks dating back to about the 1890s. These are textbooks that were actually used in Wisconsin. And looking at these pages of these these books from 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you can see that people who taught math were wrestling with the same questions that we wrestle with now. It's quite amazing. You can also see, by the way, that kids in math class wrote the same things in their textbooks and pencil that they do now. (laughs) Um, No, but the point being that I think just to start with, there's a lot of discussion now about the common core, you know, a new uh, set of national uh, goals for math education. Um, people think that they're arguing about the common core, but they're participating in an argument that's been going on in roughly the same form since before the common core was even dreamed up. That's one important thing that I think it's important for people to keep in mind. Um, so in general, I think that there is the two competing views are one, that the primary goal um, should be to execute computations uh, correctly and swiftly and usually algorithmically. Um, That's what's sometimes called the traditionalist movement, although it's not clear to me that it's that, that traditional. Um, The opposing view would say, well, the important thing is really to sort of try to train in understanding, to train in the notion of mathematics as play, mathematics as discovery, and de-emphasizes and de-emphasizes computation. That view is often called the reform movement, although, again, whether it counts as reform is precisely what people are arguing about, right? So both names are sort of imperfect. Um, so my own stance on this is, it's, I'm afraid it's rather wishy-washy. Um, I think the goals of both of those, the, the both of those sets of goals I described, are absolutely essential to doing anything that's worth being called mathematics. Um, So we have to get both of those done. If we want to do something that is worth calling math in school, um, we have to get both of those done. I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's dispensable for students to be able to compute quickly and correctly, um, basic facts of arithmetic. Um, I think students do have to know their times tables rather well, um, in the same way that to be able to write decent English prose, you better be able to spell, right? You can't be like looking up each word as you go or you'll never get into that state of flow or that state of comfort with the language that allows you to learn how to write effectively and persuasively, right? You're sort of stuck at a lower level. Um, and I think the same is true for students who can't compute. 
On the other hand, if we settle for creating students who can only compute, then what are we really teaching them? We're teaching them to replicate the functions of a device that now costs $5, right? Like a like an app on their iPhone or a cheap calculator. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that this is something that is not realized because like so many other things in our society today, the views on this are polarized. I think there's a middle ground there, which is what people should be looking at, which unfortunately they don't always. But that middle ground, by the way, is I think, I mean, my experience is somewhat limited. My oldest child, my son, uh, just finished second grade. But as far as I can see, that middle ground is what most teachers in schools actually occupy, right? I mean, what my kid comes home from school with is he comes home with activities that I think are directed towards discovery and directed towards intuition and understanding, but also like sheets of subtraction problems. I mean, both are actually being done like in our schools right now as we speak. And even as we speak, they were being done 50 years ago and certainly were being done 65 years ago when I was going through second grade. Um, And I I, think that, you know, I think that that speaks to the intelligence of the teachers as opposed to the uh, uh, because teachers generally do sensible things. They know enough math to teach elementary school and that's what they teach. I think that... um, I mean, certainly it's true, though, that I think not every elementary school teacher knows enough math. Sure. sure. And that's one area of challenge. Another is that, of course, one thing that is actually different is that I think our schools are much more deeply entwined with standardized testing than they were when I was a kid. Um, Those tests have higher stakes. They matter for teacher hiring, for principal hiring and firing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I don't think that's going away. I don't think – and so – one thing that I think is not often enough discussed, we talk a lot about what teachers should do and to some extent yeah. what our parents should do. But given that teachers and principals and parents have no choice now but to prepare their students to do well, their students and their kids to do well on those tests, I think a lot of responsibility also falls on the shoulders of the people who write the tests. And that's not talked about enough. If we're going to have those tests be high stakes and we're going to have the fate of our schools and our kids depend on how they do in those tests – and we have ideas about what math we want to be taught, we better make sure that that's what those tests are actually testing to the greatest extent possible. And that gives the people who write the tests a ton of responsibility, and they have to be part of the discussion too. I think that's an extremely good point, and I'd like to temp- – well, I'd like to uh, segue from this to your book in particular because we've talked about your views. But as I said, this is one of the, this is one of the best books that I've read in my life. Thank you. Um, and it has four major sections, linearity, inference, expectation, and regression. Did you choose these topics because you felt there were so many different ways to be wrong through misunderstanding of these topics in particular? Well, it was. It, I, I wish I could say it was as well planned out as all that. Um, what happened in real life was more like this. I wrote a long proposal uh, to the press about what I was going to write about. I proposed, I think, like 18 chapters or something I was going to do. Um, and at some point in the process, I'd written three of them, and I had about 300 pages. So that was a problem, right? <laughs> do the algebra and see. So I, so I, I called them, and I was like, Look, I'm going to ask you straight. Do you want me to to do the proposal that I gave you and write an 1,800-page book? Or do you more want me to choose like my five favorite topics and like give you a normal-length book? And obviously, they wanted they wanted the more normal-sized book, right? They didn't want like a multi-volume tome. So, um, so those parts, which are now split into multiple chapters, each one of those in my original conception was going to be a chapter. But what you find, you know, math 
it's everything is connected to everything else. So you sort of start writing about one topic and you think that you have something very self-contained and compact to say. Um, but you keep on finding yourself wandering down a path and finding another story that you're like, well, I have to tell this. Like, how can I get to this point where I'm right in position to tell this amazing story and not tell it? And then before you know it, what you thought was going to be a 20-page chapter is 100 pages. And so that's where those five parts uh, came from. Well, I'm sure glad that you put Abraham Wald at the beginning because I hadn't seen that anecdote and my life would have been incomplete if I didn't. I think um, I learned it from um, I think I learned it from Howard Weiner, if I remember correctly. He's an interesting guy. He used to be chief statistician at ETS while we're talking about standardized tests. And he's written some very interesting books about. Um, OMG, I used to work for ETS when I was a graduate school uh, did <laughs> when you I know was Howard graduate Wainer? student at Berkeley. No, because <laughs> I worked for ETS in 1963 through 1966. Oh, okay. So Probably, probably unlikely. But anyway, uh, with regard to the 18 topics, it gives you how not to be wrong, part two, how not to be wrong, strikes back, all sorts of things. <laughs> anyway, uh, getting on to these various topics, what is linearity and how, it is, how is it both used and abused? Well, so um, the example I start with is um, I sort of slightly poke fun at a guy who wrote a column entitled why is the U.S. trying to become more like Sweden when Sweden is trying to become less like Sweden? Um, and I think that it, it is a successfully punchy headline, right? It has a certain force, and you're like, "Huh, like that is weird." Like if you know that there's some kind of seems to be some kind of contradiction there. But in fact, I argue that there is no contradiction there at all. It's only apparent, and the reason we see it as a contradiction is because we have some image of what you might call a linear relationship between our policies and our prosperity. Um, this is a little hard to do on the radio. I'm sort of, uh, you have to sort of imagine <laughs> a line drawn on the page. And the point is that if you imagine a line drawn on the page, it's either sloping up or it's sloping down, right? A line, that's just yep. how lines are. That's what they do. Um, but in real life, um, the curves that economics presents us with are usually not lines. They're, they're sort of bumpy or they're curvy. Um, and in this case, I think most people would agree, well, there's some sort of, if you think of the difference between the United States and Sweden, which is what this fellow is referring to, as some kind of difference in the size of government, right? Like how much of the economy is, uh, is occupied with government work. Um, there's such a thing as the government being too small, and there's such a thing as the government being too big. So if you imagine the kind of how the prosperity of your country varies as as a function of the size of government. I mean, of course, it's vastly more complicated than that, but when we're just napkin sketching, we can do stuff like that. Well, it's going to sort of start low and then go higher and hit some optimum point and then go down again. I'm tracing it with my finger, which, of course, you can't see, but it's impossible for me to say this without making hand gestures. Um, and so what's going on is precisely that that curve is not a line. It's some kind of humped curve. It starts low, goes up, goes down again. And once you draw that picture, it's crystal clear that there's no contradiction. Maybe the best size of government is somewhere in between us and Sweden, in which case it makes sense for us to increase the size of our welfare state, maybe by instituting some kind of national health care while Sweden trims its, its down. 
Well, that curve that, you know, that goes up somewhere, comes down again, hump curve appears in numerous different locations in your book. And one of the places that it appears um, is when you're discussing the idea of expectation. And you discuss this a lot in with regard to gambling. And I want to discuss some of the gambling incidents in a moment. But since we're on that curve, um, we used to say at poker that if your bluffs are never called, you're not bluffing enough. And you bring up the point that the economist George Stigler said that if you never miss a plane, you're spending too much time in airports. Um, I think this relates to that hump curve that you were talking about. Absolutely. And in some sense, I think the, the, the way that curve keeps on coming back again and again is meant to illustrate the way that, um, you know, one of the uses of mathematics is this kind of a mental force multiplier. There are problems which seem like different problems on the surface, but mathematically are really the same. And so once you've understood one of them, in some sense, you've understood something about all of them. Of course, each has its own individuating features that are special and that you need to pay attention to. But in some sense, structurally, it's quite similar that um, people like to say, oh, I, will, I always leave my house early enough so that I'm sure I won't miss the plane. But one interesting thing about that is that it's a total lie. right? Nobody actually means that they're sure they, don't, they won't miss the plane. I mean, it could be the case that you could get in like a two-hour traffic jam <laughs> and then you would miss it. I mean, nobody – to be sure you would miss the plane, what would that mean? It would mean like you left the day before and stayed in the airport hotel the night before so you could like well, – and no one actually does this, right? Um, of course. So there, in other words, there is such a thing as leaving too early, like if you did – if you, if you uh, leave the day before. And there's such a thing as leaving too late, like if you plan to arrive at the airport like 15 minutes before your flight. And so very similarly to the Sweden example um, – there's some optimum in between where the chance of missing the plane is not zero, but it's tolerably small. And that's what people actually aim to do. And of course, where that point is, is going to be completely different for different people, depending on their level of tolerance for risk, depending on how much they like hanging out in the airport. Um, it's going to be different for different flights, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it's not like there's some magical formula for this is when you should get to the airport. Um, the observation is a qualitative one. It's that if you're doing it right, it's not the case that you have a zero chance of missing the plane. Um, the other example I give, which is actually a little bit closer to this thing about Sweden, is that um, that if your government never wastes any money, you're spending too much money fighting government waste. <laughs> you don't actually want to reduce that amount of government waste to zero. People say they do, right? Everyone running for office says, like, we're going to get rid of the waste in the government, but they don't mean it. And they shouldn't mean it. Yeah, that's an extremely interesting point. And one of the things that I that I really enjoy about the book is that not only are these recurrent, there are these recurring themes which come back again, like the humped curve. But one of the things that I think every single mathematician who is interested in how mathematics applies to the real world, and that's about 97% of the mathematicians, about 3% are off in that ivory tower somewhere. But one of the things that I think is extremely important is the way that um, unusual events are connected one to another uh, via mathematics. And there's a lovely example. The idea that improbable events occur, they, in fact, improbable events happen a lot. They connect Bible codes and mutual funds. And I think this was an extremely enjoyable portion of your book. Right. So this is a, this, I wrote about a story which now happened, I guess, gosh, I guess about like 15 or 20 years ago that a group of researchers um, believed that they had found statistical proof that um, that letters in the Torah, patterns of letters in the Torah, the Jewish scripture, um, predicted events that took place after the Torah was written. So as you can imagine, this was kind of a bombshell, right? Um, you bet. 
And um, what eventually sort of transpired, I mean, as people really started to sort of dig into this uh, research, um, was that the what had gone wrong, because indeed it had gone wrong, what had gone wrong was that the researchers had in some sense given themselves too much wiggle room. Like that, what the, To be precise, what they believed that the Torah predicted was uh, the dates that certain famous rabbis would later be born, like famous rabbis of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, etc., etc., um, but these rabbis, they don't tend to have one name. There's a lot of different forms of their name. And it turned out that sort of by giving yourself the choice of, okay, which of this guy's five names am I going to use? Which of this other guy's three names am I going to use? You actually give yourself a lot of chances to, so to speak, hit the jackpot. Um, so many that, in fact, um, with that level of wiggle room, it wasn't so surprising that they were able to generate what looked like amazingly good predictions. And then other... Um, other researchers were able to, for instance, find the same level of prediction of the rabbis' births uh, in books like the Hebrew version of War and Peace, for instance. That was a famous uh, that was a famous example, which presumably was not written in such a way as to predict the births and death dates of rabbis. Um, so the financial version of this um, comes from what are called incubator funds, and it's sort of something else that I think is often overlooked when we think about, you know, when, when, you, when you buy a mutual fund or any kind of financial instrument, you know, there's always that little saying that says uh, past, perform, past, performance, or sorry, past results are no guarantee of future performance. Have you ever seen that sentence? Many times. And, you know, you read it and you're like, oh, that's like, like the warning that's on the tag on the pillow, right? Oh, some lawyer made them write that and, like, I'm not going to pay attention to it. But it's actually, like, really true. It's kind of important. Um, it's maybe the most important sentence in the entire document. Um, I mean, that's why they write it, because it is actually correct. Um, and one reason for that is that, you know, a mutual fund may try out 100 or 200 different investment strategies um, to see which one works. Like maybe they'll sort of keep those incubated, which means not sold to the public for a long time, like let's say one or two or five years. Um, and maybe 199 out of those 200 don't really beat the market, but one does. And they say, oh, well, this one is the best. We're going to sell this one. And they say, hey, look at this fun. It beat the market five years in a row. It's great. Well, here's the thing. If you have 200 chances, you definitely are going to find one of those things that beats the market by a substantial amount five years in a row. It's improbable that a, few, that a fund would do that unless there was something to it. But improbable things happen a lot given a lot of chances. That's the point the, the, that part of the book is trying to make. Um, and so if you see that that fund did very well for five years in a row, you might be quite impressed, but you would be less impressed if you knew that that firm had been trying 200 different funds and that happens to be the one that came out on top. Then it becomes much more plausible that that was just by chance and there's nothing special about this particular investment strategy except that it was the lucky one over that five-year incubation period. And of course, as happens so often in your book, this theme gets, uh, this theme appears over again in some other what appears to be totally different area, and that's the area of the validity of medical studies, in which what we have is, um, you go into a, uh, a portion of the book which discusses the idea of, uh, significance levels, but most of the, most medical studies are accepted on the basis of 
you know, one in 20, it would only happen by chance one in 20 times. But of course, as I think there was uh, a book that you referred to by somebody named Yanidis or something like that, right. in which he points out that probably the vast majority of medical studies are, even though they purport to be worthwhile, are actually worthless. And um, that ties into what it is that you were just discussing with the Bible codes and the incubation of the mutual funds. And I think that that's so important that it because medical studies determine a large portion of our health care that I think that's worth discussing here. Yeah, and part of it is, um, you know, part of it is it's a disease of richness because we are producing medical research at like a vastly higher rate than we ever have any other time in human history, right? They're, you bet. We are generating lots and lots and lots of experiments and lots and lots and lots of studies because we have lots of resources to do medical research and medical research has gotten cheaper. So we're able to do more of it. But what that means is that there's a new danger that if you try a thousand things, the odds are very good that some of them are going to appear to work just by chance. And that requires like a real level of statistical rigor and hygiene on the part of researchers. I actually tend to think, I think Ioannidis' work has been both obviously influential and influential to the good. Um, I tend not to think the situation is as much of a disaster as he thinks it is. I don't think the whole enterprise of medical research is currently practiced is totally bankrupt. But I think, and I think actually people in those fields have been very willing to kind of take a very hard look at their statistical practice and try to understand in this new world where we can generate data very quickly and cheaply and in large amounts, um, how we keep from being fooled by the many, many, many false positives we're going to get. Yeah, I think uh, a few, a little while back, you mentioned the idea of jackpot. And whenever I hear the word jackpot, something in me reacts simply because I spent a lot of time as a card player. And mathematics and gambling are intertwined. When I was in grad school, Edward Thorpe showed how to beat the dealer at blackjack, which was perhaps the first real solid incursion of computers and mathematics to gambling. And a, general, a generation later, I'm not sure whether or not you read this, it was a book called The Eudaimonic Pie, a bunch of MIT graduate students used chaos theory to win at roulette. And this continues even unto this day because you describe how a bunch of Harvard and MIT grad students beat the cash windfall state lottery. And I think our listeners would enjoy hearing about that. Yeah, it's an amazing story. And actually, I was, I was surprised and felt very fortunate that nobody had sort of told this story at book length when I found out about it. It was, um, it was something that happened actually over the course of about seven years from 2005 to 2012. There was sort of a quirk in the rules of this particular lottery game that Massachusetts had, um, which meant that on certain days, not all the time, but on certain days, the game had what's called mathematically a positive expected value, which in essence means that on average, if you played that game on those days and only those days, in the long run, you were going to win, which is not the way lotteries are usually set up, right? Because the point of a lottery is to funnel money to the state from the players. <laughs> Um, in this case, the structure was rather different. I mean, I think one thing, so basically I read about this and I was like, how could this have happened? And I was able, there was a great uh, report from the inspector general of Massachusetts that gave a lot of the facts, but it also left, left a lot of questions. And to be honest, I got kind of obsessed trying to figure out what was actually going on here. How could this have gone on for seven years? I, I was able to talk to some of the principals. It wasn't just the MIT kids. There were several groups of people who were buying large numbers of tickets in this game, up to 200000 at a time, making plenty of money. Um, and eventually, I, I 
I tried. I figured out a lot of this stuff myself, just sort of trying to reverse engineer what mathematics they must have done in order to get the results uh, they were getting. But one of the main points is that this story was told as if these guys had scammed the lottery. And part of what I came to understand after I really thought about this story was that these guys were not scamming the lottery at all. Yes, they were winning a lot of money, but the way it's structured from the point of view of the state is that the state gets its 80 cents a ticket no matter who wins. So the state doesn't care who wins. Um, The more tickets that are bought, and these guys were buying lots and lots and lots of tickets, the more money the state makes. So the state wins too. So you should think of essentially what these guys were doing was they were taking money from the other players and the state was taking its cut. The state was essentially collecting a tax. Yeah, I thought that I thought it was fascinating. And then, as as so often happens in your book, the idea came up again in conjunction with error correcting codes. What are they and how do they relate to this particular situation? Well, so that comes from I sort of first I, 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 I understood this thing about Massachusetts role in the whole story and was like, okay, now I've understood what was going on and why this was allowed to persist for so long. But there was still a puzzle, which was that this one group of of betters, these MIT students, um, they filled out all their tickets by hand. I mean, hundreds of thousands of tickets. Um, And the other players all used the quick pick machine, right? They let the machine pick their numbers at random. And this was very puzzling. Like, why would they do all this extra work that they didn't have to do? And so I came to understand... Uh, as I studied this more, that you can actually change the risk that you take on. And actually, a good way to think of this is, again, by passing to an extreme example. If you were playing this game and buying 200,000 tickets, would you buy 200,000 copies of the same ticket? No, you obviously wouldn't. Because you might win 200,000 copies of the prize, but probably you would lose all your money. So in some sense, you clearly want to spread out your tickets, but exactly what that means turns out to be like a rather rich combinatorial problem, like how to optimally choose your numbers so that to the greatest extent possible, you can guarantee that you won't lose money. And this ends up being when you really sort of figure out mathematically what you're trying to do, this turns out to be very close to this mathematical theory of error correcting codes, which was developed by Claude Shannon as part of a development of information theory, the beginning of theoretical computer science back in the 1940s. Yeah, I thought that was absolutely beautiful. And then in the section on your book in which you discuss regression, regression is an extremely important concept. And it's not, you know, it's unfortunately not appreciated by a large segment of the population. I have a friend of mine who's a golfer and uh, he just he's been working at it, working at his game, paying large sums to various pros, etc. And finally, he managed to break 80. And he said, you know, now I understand how to play this game. And of course, the next day he went, came, went out and shot, you know, his typical round. And even though I explained the concept of regression to the mean to him, I think that when you describe it, you describe it much more entertainingly when you discuss the secret study on mediocrity in business and the statistician Harry Hodling, I'm not sure that that's the way you pronounce it, his rebuttal, which I thought was an incredibly entertaining introduction to the concept of regression to the mean and i think our listeners would enjoy hearing about it sure oh it's hoteling by the way i actually oh okay i thought it was hoteling too i learned this 
I, I actually learned this while I was recording the audiobook. I learned how to pronounce a lot of things I thought I already knew how to pronounce <laughs> when I was doing that. But they're real sticklers for getting everything right. So it turns out it is hoteling. Um, yeah, so what happened is George Sechrist, he was kind of a statistician and a business intellectual. He was the dean of the Northwestern Business School. Um, and one of the greatest students of business of his time. And what he had done was he had collected a huge amount of data from, I think it was about 1916 to 1933, about different firms and how efficiently they used their resources, uh, how much profit they made, what their ratio of profit to expenses was, basically every statistic you can imagine. Um, he recorded this for hundreds of hundreds of businesses. Um, and then he wrote this, he writes this amazing book in 1933 called The Triumph of Mediocrity in Business. I mean, what a title. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And his thesis was the following. What he had observed, and he had observed this across every category of business, was that if you looked at the businesses that were the best performers in 1916 and then tracked them over time to see how they did, um, they were no longer the best in 1933. They were still pretty good. They were above average, but other businesses had surpassed them. Um, and actually, the mirror effect was true for the very worst businesses. They, had, they didn't stay the worst. They moved towards the middle. So this is what he meant by the triumph of mediocrity. That he said that, in his view, there was something about the nature of business competition that kind of moved everybody towards the middle. It improved the worst, but it degraded the best. Which is, I mean, it was kind of a depressing way to look at how business worked, actually. And it sort of fit, you know, 1933, remember, this is right after the crash. So people were pretty depressed about the prospects of American capitalism. And it was, uh, it very much fit the mood of the times. But in fact... Um, what Hotelling pointed out, who was a statistician at Columbia, um, was that what he was observing did not require some kind of new law of business physics that was pushing everything towards the middle. Um, it was a statistical phenomenon that had been understood at least since the days of, of Francis Galton, the great uh, statistical biologist of the, of the late 19th century in England. Um, the easiest way to explain it is like this. If you look at those businesses that were the very best in 1916, why were they the best? Well, there's probably two reasons, right? Probably they actually were better managed, had a better business plan, a better product, maybe were run by savvier people than the other businesses. But also probably they were lucky, right? Every kind of success, whether it's in business or art or sports, is some combination of innate qualities and luck. And if you're at the very top of the heap, probably both of those things were working in your favor. So then what happens over time? Well, if you're smarter than your competition and you have a better product, all this stuff, that may still be true. But luck fluctuates. If you were lucky in 1916, there's no reason to think you're going to be lucky in 1933. And so you see this phenomenon where whoever is the very best at one time maybe is not going to be the very best uh, in a future time. And that doesn't require uh, anything to be forcing you towards mediocrity. Um, it's what happens even if there's no such effect. So that's the, that's the phenomenon that's called regression to the mean. And what Hotelling pointed out that I think really makes the point very vigorously is that if you took the businesses that were the very best in 1933 and moved backwards in time, they would regress towards mediocrity in 1916 in the exact same way. So clearly somehow Sechrist <laughs> must be wrong because this force that he imagined was acting, there's no way it can work both forwards and backwards in time. Right? That doesn't make sense. And yet that's beautiful. what the shows. Yeah, just beautiful. Um, 
in uh, in discussing various aspects of statistics that apply to understanding the everyday world, you have a very nice example of the fact that correlation is not transitive. The fact that niacin increases HDL levels and elevated HDL levels reduce the risk of heart attack would lead you via transitivity to believe the believe that niacin reduces the risk of heart attacks, but then studies didn't show that. Um, but nonetheless, isn't it often reasonable to proceed on the theory that correlation is transitive? After all, niacin might have reduced the risk of heart attacks, and it was certainly worth trying. Yeah, absolutely. So I should just say transitivity means that um, it's the nature of things like, let's say, living in the same town as. If I live in the same town as you and you live in the same town as him, then I live in the same town as him. Um, it's, so it's characteristic of some kinds of relationships, like living in the same town, but not of other kinds of relationships, like friendships. I mean, if I'm friends with you and you're friends with somebody else, that doesn't mean that I'm friends with that somebody else. Now, as you say, it might make it more likely that I'm friends with that somebody else. In fact, that principle underlies like a lot of social networks, right? Sort of Facebook will always suggest to you, hey, this person is a friend with a lot of your friends. Maybe they're your friend too. Maybe you should consider adding them, right? So it does give you some evidence in that direction. Um, so I agree with you, actually, that it's not like doctors were crazy to suggest that people supplement with niacin, given that they knew that supplementation with niacin would increase good cholesterol, and they knew that higher levels of good cholesterol were associated in turn with uh, lower cardiovascular risk. But as it happened, like the, the studies that people have done of, showing, of relating niacin to supplementation to cardiovascular risk, just don't see any relation between those two things. So it certainly might have been the case, but as it happens, it seems that it's not the case. Yeah, in the uh, in regard to the idea of transitivity, one of the things that you do in the book is you talk about some of the uh, some of the aspects of mathematics as it applies to mathematics of voting. This forms an important segment of your book, and I remember I got interested in this too. And there's a very interesting paradox associated with transitivity. Individual preference is transitive. For instance, I like Chinese food more than I like uh, more. Than I like Italian food, and I like Italian food more than I like Mediterranean food. So I like Chinese food more than Mediterranean food. But it doesn't work that way with majorities. If you uh, if you had a bunch of people, and the majority preferred Chinese food to Italian food, and the majority preferred Italian food to Mediterranean food, you cannot necessarily conclude that the majority prefers Chinese food to Mediterranean food. And this has an extreme influence on our ability to devise accurate and good voting systems, something that has troubled philosophers and I guess you'd say political scientists such as Condorcet for centuries. Maybe you'd like to discuss this a little. Absolutely. And this phenomenon is really something that is discovered by Condorcet, who is a, a sort of a mathematician and in some sense really the first social scientist in the sense that we understand today. Um, he lived around the time of the French Revolution and was active in revolutionary politics. Um, also died along the, around the time of the French Revolution, too. Right. Eventually, I mean, as often happened, people were active in politics around that time. He eventually fell afoul of, like, the wrong guys and was killed or committed suicide. We don't really know. Um, but in some sense, it's really one thing I learned a lot 
from reading what people were writing in those times, which is very interesting as a modern person, you sort of to make contact with how people thought of these questions hundreds of years ago, is that this really presented a philosophical quandary for somebody like Condorcet, because Condorcet felt that the majority, what they, he felt that democracy was something like a measuring instrument, like something like a scientific instrument that was trying to figure out what was best. So in his view, if the majority thought that option A, or let's say candidate A was better than candidate B, if they preferred candidate A to candidate B, that was a statement that candidate A really was better than candidate B. Um, so when he discovered that these paradoxes were possible, that was a huge philosophical blow to him, and he was really shaken because it can't be that candidate A is better than candidate B, and B is better than C, and C is better than A. And yet it's perfectly possible for majority preferences to give exactly that result. So this actually ties back with this discussion of formalism and axioms. Condorcet wanted to develop a political system that in some sense worked like geometry, started from some simple series of axioms that any reasonable person had to accept, and derived all the laws and all the rules from that. Um, the problem is that one of his axioms was that, well, if the majority prefers option A to option B, then obviously a democratic society should choose option A. That sounds completely reasonable. It sounds like you have to accept that if you want to call yourself a democrat at all. Um, but already, unfortunately, that axiom can lead to self-contradictions. And so it's not uh, this, what's called the Condorcet axiom. Um, it simply can't be adopted. And this was something that really caused him a great deal of both mathematical and philosophical consternation. And also, um, when this, you know, when this was finally resolved by Kenneth Arrow, who um, not only, uh, you know, Kenneth Arrow is a very interesting character, and it's so typical of advances in mathematics and the sciences that somebody comes out of nowhere, often extremely young, and just demolishes entire schools of thought by some very, you know, just by some very insightful thinking. And um, Kenneth Arrow was an economist working as a uh, he was a grad student at the time he was working at the Rand Corporation and he essentially managed to work out what was going on while a grad student it took him a few days he wrote it up one paper was published um, then all of a sudden re people realized that this was just an absolutely incredible concept and um, entire you know schools of philosophy social science have revolved around it and Kenneth Arrow deservedly won a Nobel Prize for it. And it's sort of interesting because it reflects upon the way mathematics is in that it's not these isolated, even though occasional breakthroughs are made by isolated individuals, happens all the time. Mathematics is a communal enterprise. And um, I don't think people actually realize that all the time because all, all the uh, all the entertainment media generally portray this one brilliant individual doing something brilliant. But what happens is we're all just sort of fumbling away, chipping at you know, chipping at the uh, at the at the huge. Uh, what Newton referred to as the great ocean of uh, the great ocean of an of. Uh, ignorance out there, and mathematics is a communal enterprise. I feel, and how do you shape? Uh, how do you feel that this differs from the popular view of mathematics? Now that I've expounded my position, well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, to the extent that, I mean, the typical 
public view of mathematicians, to the extent that people even know that there are still mathematicians who are alive today, um, they do probably think of them as a person in a cave in a wizard hat who is kind of <laughs> doing like, these sort of amazing mental feats, like separated from you know the real world and all of its concerns. And obviously, I mean, if you know anything, you know, for people who know anything about the way mathematics is conducted today, uh, that's a completely unrealistic view. I mean, there's no question that mathematics rewards contemplation to an extent, but um, as you say, it's a communal enterprise, it's a very social enterprise. Um, an interesting thing happened, I guess this is already now a few years in the rear view mirror, but nowadays the majority of mathematical papers have more than one author. That didn't used to be true, but it's true now. Um, so perhaps one thing that's going on, you might ask, well, why do people have like this sort of... Uh, very not true to life view of how mathematics is conducted. I do think it was probably truer in the past than it is now, right? When mathematics was a much smaller group of people, um, it was much harder for people to communicate, right? If, you're communica if your level of communication with other mathematicians depends on letters that take months to get from France to Germany or from Germany to England, um, then inevitably the enterprise is going to be more characterized by sort of like long solo feats of monastic contemplation. Um, but that's no longer the intellectual world we live in. Yeah, you know something. I get, even even Newton, who was probably as egotistical mathematician that ever lived, said, I stand on the shoulders of giants. And Jordan, I'd like to thank you so much for this interview. And realizing that you're probably not going to produce How Not to Know Parts 2, 3, etc. to fill in the remaining, uh, the remaining 1,400 of the 1,800 pages, do you have any plans for the near in the near term and possibly midterm future. Oh, well, I have lots of math to do. <laughs> There's lots of math to be done and you're not going to get it all done. Not by myself at any rate. Yeah, so in other words, you're going to go back to uh, uh, going to go back to academics after. Well, let me put it this way: from the standpoint of one of of a reader who greatly appreciated your book, um, I always think that it's necessary. Um, it's necessary after you turn out something like this. I don't think you can turn out something like this immediately thereafter. I think what you have to do is you just have to sort of. Uh, shift to another gear, and certainly, you know, looking at mathematics again might be one. But I certainly hope that at some time in the future, you'll produce a sequel to this book because this book was such a wonderful read, and I compared it to the uh, the quintessential book that I've read. If somebody said to me, "Take one book on a desert island, or one book to leave for humanity," which book would you leave? I'd leave Connections by James Burke, and James Burke wrote several sequels to Connections. Not None of which was as good as Connections, because it almost never is. But Jordan, I have a feeling if you were to come back and do How Not to Know, Volume 2, I think it would be every bit as good, and I hope you will. Well, thanks. I'll try. <laughs> okay. Jordan, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you.